Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, bringing you the best of my Times Radio show. Don't forget, you can listen live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1, on your smart speaker, on your DAB radio, or download the Times Radio app so you can listen to Times Radio wherever you are. And you can listen to the Red Box Podcast, which you're already doing, so you already know how to do that. Coming up on today's episode, what's left for the left is Jeremy Corbyn is blocked from standing as a Labour MP at the next election... What does Keir Starmer need to do about the Corbynistas? Patrick Maguire takes us through the off-the-record chats he's been having with senior Labour figures. And John Landsman, who set up momentum to campaign for Jeremy Corbyn, accuses Keir Starmer of behaving like Putin. Uh, that's coming up in just a moment. First, though, as it's Tuesday, it's time for this. In a world of politics without the boring bits, get ready for blockbuster debate on Times Radio. One is the wise voice of experience. The other, the young genius learning from the master. Together they are Finkelstein and Zeffman. Daniel Finkelstein and Henry Zeffman on Times Radio. Either of you, can you know what that, that's the, the music from? I'd already switched off by the time we got the music. <laughs> uh, you've actually succeeded in making that jingle worse. <laughs> I can't believe it. I thought nothing could be more embarrassing or ludicrous than the, the Finkelvich one. But yeah, but now it's this actually I'm really glad. is up there. Compliments accepted. Uh, this is from Karate Kid. Oh. So you are Karate Kid one or two? I'm going to say one. I don't know. I did uh, three months of karate lessons when I was about eight did years you? old. I was really, really bad w- at it. Was Danny your teacher? <laughs> <laughs> For the purposes of this show, yes. Yes, very good. That, that would definitely work on the socials. Uh, did you ever you ever done any martial arts? No. I can't remember. How long have we known each other? Well, no, I don't know whether, whether Seb Cohen <laughs> got you in a headlock. No, I did. I did uh, or I William Hague. You didn't get no, caught in judo. No, I defeated the Seb Cohen once in an egg and spoon race. If did that you? counts, yeah. <laughs> He dropped the egg. Basically, the egg and no, spoon race. What, Olympian? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Olympian Seco. Basically, the egg and spoon race uh, favours mediocrity because yeah. if you don't run fast enough, you lose anyway. But yeah. if you run too fast, which may have been Sebastian Coe's problem, yeah. you drop the egg. Yeah. And uh, that's exactly what happened to him, the fool. I'm just and, making, uh, making note uh, of that for Danny. D- get Danny at Tory Conference with the egg. You've done the egg and spoon race, haven't you? I have twice. Yeah. And won twice. There we are. Uh, in fact, I beat a Tory MP. I, I was very worried last time. There was a Tory MP called David Simmons. It was, we were limbering up. He said, yeah, I ran the London Marathon yeah. this weekend. Well, he had the same and problem. I thought, oh, God, he's really fast. But then he revealed that he'd been beaten by someone dressed as a fridge. <laughs> Wasn't he carrying a fridge? <laughs> One or the other, he's but it MP, became clear. He's my MP, David Simmons. Actually, a very nice man. Yeah, he was a very, very nice man, but good, not, good not, man. not quick with an egg. But no. Good. Uh, right, let's turn our attention to what we're here for, uh, if we must. Um, the SNP result. Are unionists right, do we think, to be <coughs> dancing for joy at uh, Humza Youssef uh, winning? Um, William Hague in the paper today, in the Times, uh, saying this is this is a good result. Well, do, you, do you agree, Danny? Well, it's clearly not Nicola Sturgeon, um, but I'm not sure how much difference that's going to make it may make it's difficult for me to judge because i'm not an expert on scottish politics and it is very you know tony blair always used to discover every time he went there that this you know master of uh, politics had all completely collapsed for him he couldn't get uh, even one day of good press he started complaining about the coverage he got so um being able to sort of have a grip on the sort of, on Scottish politics or understanding, having a feel for the individuals is is quite difficult, I think, from outside. Uh, everything I'm reading does say this, doesn't it? That he's not as good as Nicola Sturgeon and therefore that'll have a big impact. I, I would just question it. My view of 
big questions like independence are there. They're primarily demographic, they're traditional, they're historical. I wonder how much difference an individual is really going to make. But obviously, because the unionist issue is right at the margin, it could it could you know, do so for a time. I sort of remember, Henry, there was a bit in 2014 of Nicola Sturgeon's not Alex Salmond. The, the, you know, Alex Salmond going after such an amazing... But was that the moment that, you know, the tide turned and could she follow in his footsteps? And actually, if anything, she's proven more impressive. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I was with... I mean, it is certainly true that politicians south of the border do believe that this is going to transform... Uh, the dynamic in Scotland. I was having lunch with a shadow cabinet minister at the time. The result was announced yesterday. Uh, oh, well, if I named them, you wouldn't. Anyway, and uh, and and they broke oh, out. Got Google. Got they Google. they broke out into a grin. I mean, a genuine grin, and said, "This is this is amazing for us." Uh, and their view was that because Hamza Youssef has such a long record in the Scottish government and a long record, they say, of failure, it allows them to get the terrain of debate off the constitutional issue and onto his record and the SNP government's record. Whether that actually proves true or not, I'm not sure, because as, as Danny says, a lot of people obsess over the constitutional yeah. issue because that's the basis on which they voted. Did you at least know who you were having lunch with? <laughs> a, a friend of mine, when he was in the Shadow Cabinet, they, the, the whole Shadow Cabinet was sent out to campaign in the country um, and uh, he went campaigned in an area all day and as he got in the car the chairman of the local party said so tell me what do you do for a living <laughs> uh, um, I uh, I was going to say another tell you another story but they're still an MP and they might be useful so let's go about another um, uh, talking about the record though Henry and the, the record he has to run on I mean no one's done more to highlight it than Kate Forbes let's, let's listen to her talking about Humza Yousaf's record at transport crime and then health well, Hamza, you've had a number of jobs in government. When you were transport minister, the trains were never on time. When you were justice minister, the police were strained to breaking point. And now, as health minister, we've got record high waiting times. What makes you think you can do a better job as first minister? And Danny, so often, someone says or does something, and then uh, an off-the-record source briefs... Oh, we're going to have that all over our leaflets at the next election. And I say, no, you're not. Nobody's going to remember what on earth this row was. However, this is this is quite bad for him, isn't it? Yeah, look, that is a bad. Obviously, it's a that people will use that. Um, and at, in the end, uh, politics being what it is, time for a change will definitely catch up with the SNP. And usually, it does require some external events. Uh, you know, as the Liz mm. Trust, the Liz Trust uh, premiership. Uh, triggered time for a change for the Conservatives and I think it's very difficult for them to get back and if you look at listen to the focus groups they're all now about time for a change whatever Rishi Sunak says on a particular issue so they say why didn't you do it before and it may be that the SNP electorally reaches that point I'm not sure whether I think that's true uh, necessarily for the union uh, that's a bigger question mm. but uh, electorally it may be that it just does produce um, time for a change but I think um, so whereas I think there may be a dividend in it for uh, unionist opponents that's different from saying there may be a boost in it for the union yeah, yeah. I suppose the point is Henry is it, it tips the balance back that Previously, uh, the SNP have always told us Scotland is doing brilliantly well. Uh, it's compared to England. It's the, the, you know, England is the is the problem. Now that they've publicly, you know, they've they've opened the, the box and said actually things aren't great. Waiting list, transport, justice. The the, the Scottish electorate might think actually they're right. That's a good point. Actually, everything isn't rosy up here. 
Yeah, although I'm slightly sceptical that one SNP leadership contender saying it in a series of internal leadership debates is enough for a load of people who yeah. have voted for the SNP in successive elections, despite these complaints being made, yeah. to suddenly change their minds. I mean, one interesting counter-argument to the sort of prevailing wisdom that uh, Hamza Youssef is better news for the Union and for Scottish Labour and Scottish Conservatives than Kate Forbes. Um, of course, Kate Forbes entered this leadership election with... Um, a sort of, uh, not mayor culpa because that would suggest she she um, was disowning her past positions, but a sort of statement of her social conservatism on various issues. Um, and I was talking to someone from Scotland uh, who was saying actually a lot of their sort of not massively political sort of soft SNP voting friends had been saying during the leadership election, yeah, they'd probably vote for Hamza Youssef, he seems fine, but they would never vote for Kate Forbes because of where she stands on gay marriage and so on and so on. So I do wonder whether, you know, it may well be true that Kate Forbes is right, that Hamza Youssef is not up to running a government and therefore that condemns the SNP in Holyrood at least to sort of slow or medium-term death. But actually what Scottish Labour in particular probably don't get out of this is an immediate wave of younger progressive people who've seen themselves yeah. as SNP saying, well, I will never vote for them when they're led by this woman who doesn't believe gay people should be allowed to marry, for example. And I suppose it, it probably goes back to the point that, that every opposition party had a press release ready to go, uh, or at least a, a, a WhatsApp message to be sent anonymously, starting with, insert winner's name here, is exactly the candidate we wanted. <laughs> because they're not going to, nobody's going to say publicly, oh, this is, this is terrible news for us. So maybe we should take it with a pinch of salt. Um, uh, let's move on, Danny. You want to talk about protests and the power of protests. We've seen, well, we've seen unrest in Israel, which seems to be working uh, to some extent in terms of getting Netanyahu to think again on his judicial reforms. And we've seen protests in France, which have succeeded only so far in getting Charles to cancel his plans. Yeah, there, there's a big difference between these protests. I mean, one of them is a protest that is about... Uh, the place of the citizen in the political system. They're saying we have to use protest because uh, the political system doesn't work anymore. We have no voice in it. If you uh, were to have, a, uh, as in Israel's case, a, a, a unicameral parliament, one chamber in parliament, um, and at the same time you were to remove the ability of the Supreme Court to uh, to to constrain the executive, you would be. It would be a very dangerous. Uh, position. Whereas in France, what's happening is that an ordinary political issue, one that actually in this country was settled with almost no uh, parliamentary protest, let alone protest on the street, that is uh, the pension age, um, has turned into a, uh, you know, into a series of uh, riots and disturbances that are still uh, going on um, now. So I think there is a difference between uh, those sorts of protests. Personally, it's always been my view that um, if you to try to settle uh, issues on the street is basically to try to settle uh, a question of um, resource prioritisation. You know, do you put the money into the transport system or the pension system? Uh, and in the case of the, the French, uh, you know, people seem to be rioting against the solvency of their own pension system. To put a totally banal uh, political issue into uh, one that's basically who can throw this, yeah. uh, a piece of payment far enough, further, uh, which which has always been something that I, I've been against. So I guess a, a feature, of, I'm always always slightly surprised myself that my general, generally gentle uh, liberal politics um, uh, does hit a sort of hard conservative rock when it comes to uh, the issue of protest. 
with using my metaphors poorly. <laughs> you need to be careful hitting a rocks during a protest. Um, Henry, what, what do you make of this? And actually, it's quite, sort, of, sort of quite surprising. The, 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 well, in fact, the government here just rode back on pension, <laughs> pension reform uh, without anyone having to take to the street. Yeah, although, um, I mean, the most recent delay to the increase in the pension age seems to be because life expectancy is, is not going up as fast as they thought in the UK, which is a whole separate question. I mean, I was, I was thinking on my way over here why the protests in Israel in particular have been successful, at least for now. Um, and, and I wonder whether protests are successful rather than uh, deemed as sort of, um, uh, you know, unsavoury when they are sort of downstream of public opinion rather than the opposite. You know, a protest which, um, which you know, asserts to the political system that it is not listening to a view that actually, you know, the majority or a plurality of, of, of public opinion holds, you know, I think is probably much more powerful than a protest by a large number of people in the abstract, which ultimately is giving voice to a minority opinion. You know, I I, th I think the reason um, often that protests are successful when they are is not necessarily their disruption, but the fact that you know it is clear, almost coincidentally yeah, with yeah, the fact yeah, yeah, of yeah. the protest, that the protesters you know are giving voice to something that that, that, that a large number of people want. In, in the same way that you know, if you go back, the fuel protest was successful in a way that the Iraq war protest wasn't. The the, the, the you need to be on the side of. You need, you're right. You basically need to be riding on the on the wave of public opinion, not trying to shift it. Right, and and as much as people now say otherwise, and it's very hard to find someone who supported the Iraq War at the time. I think the polling. <laughs> I, I did. Well, okay, well, there you go. There He's he right here. Uh, but but the you know the poll the contemporaneous polling is that public opinion was was fairly split, and therefore the fact that millions of people marched ultimately was just okay a high concentration of the number of people who opposed it. Yes. Let's uh, remember, we were having a conversation on the show uh, yesterday, uh, Libby Purvis and Tom McTaker on, and we're talking about, well, it, it, the conversation started uh, with uh, Rishi Sunak had been speaking to Harry Kane in a slightly excruciating video call. Let's take a listen. You know, it, it was it was embarrassing, and I, I, I'm a Rishologist. I'm, I'm keen on Rishi. A, a Rishologist? That's good. That's good. Um, we like that. I may mean Rishophile. I've been away on holiday for a Sunakatia? couple of days. Um, I, I vaguely remember we might have had this conversation on Finkelfitch before uh, <laughs> some time ago, Danny. But I, I quite like Rishologist. But Rishologist feels like someone who yeah. might be studying Rishi Sunak rather than supporting him. Yeah, so I've been thinking quite a lot about um, how to describe the people who support Rishi Sunak inside the Conservative Party against those who didn't. I've thought a lot what would work and I've hit upon adults. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Uh, somebody's texting in the Sunakers. Uh, I think you, you could have the Sunak pack. Uh, the Sunakians, Starmerites, and Yusafwidians. I'm not sure that works. What do you think? Um, how do you characterise them, Henry? Can I give you a really curmudgeonly opinion? Yeah. I, I can't stand all these sorts of twee nicknames that people give, you know, Miller fans and all of that. <laughs> Um, oh, the Minifander was terrible. Well, just, but, but everything seems, you know, it sort of gets into the, I mean, I guess there's a difference between describing a sort of internal faction and, and a band of um, absurdly loyal external obsessives. I think I think I really turned against these sorts of people when um, I was covering the Iowa caucuses in 2020. And there was a very strange Democratic candidate who you won't remember called Andrew Yang. But he had this group of utterly obsessive fans who called themselves the Yang Gang. 
And whenever <laughs> I stopped at a petrol station, wherever it was in Iowa, however remote, there would be a member of the Yang Gang at the <laughs> counter trying to persuade the poor, spotty 17-year-old who was operating the till that they needed to turn out in the... Oh, I guess not 17, 18, in the Iowa caucuses to vote for this guy, Andrew Yang, who was running on a single ticket of universal basic income. Anyway... I mean, we should probably note, a bit unfair, I mean, but that means I refuse to engage in your game I, of giving. I, I do think. I mean, I, I agree with you actually, and and I and I think um, it would also uh, work only if if you thought that Rishi Sunak represented a kind of trend of thought in the Conservative Party, um, which was and I, you know, I was obviously joking and saying adults um, in one way, but in another way, I I think it's. What he represents really is sort of mainstream the Conservative Party rather than a particular niche yeah. ideology uh, within it. And there's a battle going on, uh, you know, with, with a sort of populist strand uh, that, that kind of rather inconsistently supports uh, Liz Truss and Boris Johnson, both of whom stand for quite different things from each other. Um, and um, I'm not sure that I think it's that descriptive. The, the Thatcherite did make some sense, uh, you know. Or the wets, you know. That was a, that was based that on was a, her obviously a position rather than a. It was, yeah. It was well. That was obviously their, you know, their position on the budget of 1981, mm. and then they continued um, yeah. for long after it. But, but actually, something really interesting that strikes me as you say that is that I think supporters of Keir Starmer in the Labour Party would accept exactly the same characterisation and would be happy to be described as adults yeah. against a wing of the Labour Party, albeit progressively being cast out, uh, who they think take a basically childish view of politics, certainly of parliamentary politics. And it almost makes me wonder, you know, is there something interesting going on that in both parties, at least the people who support the leader, some of them would have it, that it's, it's essentially not, not so much an ideological dispute as a sort of seriousness yeah. dispute. Can I, can I pull out another thing that struck me about that clip with, uh, with, with um, Libby, which was pretty interesting, which is that Libby is um, quite apolitical. She has, she has a, lot of, a lot of, she has very lot of strong views, but she's not, not aligned. And it's very interesting that she has that view of Rishi Sunak. Yeah. I found that quite striking. And it is, you know, it, it is now the only thing that the Conservative Party has going for it, really. But then um, it's interesting, if, if it is about seriousness... Doing video calls with Harry Kane because he scored one more goal than he had the previous week probably goes against that grain if people think, you know, stop mucking about. It's good. like Boris Johnson. What's terrible with my political thing is I thought it was with Harry Cole uh, of the Sun. <laughs> I didn't realise until just Those this moment. Those ones aren't televised. <laughs> I didn't realise just this moment that it was with Harry Kane. I Harry Kane, yeah, it. talking about the football, but right. it's, it's excruciating. Daniel Finkelstein and Henry Zeffman then. Of course, you can read them in The Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, what's left for the left? You're listening to the Red Box podcast. Now it's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. I'm leading this party to win an election and therefore I'll be Prime Minister to do that. That was Jeremy Corbyn when he wanted to be Prime Minister. But today, three years after he quit as Labour leader, he's set to be blocked from standing again as a Labour MP. It's an amazing turn of events for a man who's represented Labour in his constituency since 1983, who led the party into two general elections with Keir Starmer fighting alongside him in the shadow cabinet. Well, it looks like it marks the end of a factional battle between left and right, with the left of the party apparently cast out into the wilderness. But is that really right? Is it the end of Corbyn's career? 
and what is left for the left? We're going to try and answer those questions for you. I'll speak to John Landsman, long-time campaigner for the left within Labour. He worked for Tony Benn and Jeremy Corbyn. Went on to found Momentum, the group designed to support Corbyn and his ideas. And we'll hear from the veteran Labour MP, Margaret Hodge, who once confronted Corbyn and called him an anti-Semite and a racist. But first, to take us through all this, uh, Red Box editor Patrick Maguire... Um, Patrick, explain to us first of all what's happening to Jeremy Corbyn. Well, today there is a meeting of a organisation we haven't heard about since the Jeremy Corbyn years, Labour's National Executive Committee. This is Labour's ruling body. Remember, actually Labour's leader doesn't really have the power to rule by fiat, but if he has a majority on the Labour NEC, as Keir Starmer does, he can do, for instance, something like submit a motion to the National Executive Committee saying... Jeremy Corbyn lost his election in 2019. The Labour Party exists to win elections. Jeremy Corbyn being on the Labour ballot paper will uh, decrease in those chances. So let's bar him from standing as a Labour candidate. And that is what's going to happen today. And because Keir Starmer has a majority in that committee, it's going to be a formality. So this is the moment where Jeremy Corbyn crosses the Rubicon and there is most likely no going back. Now, so explain to people, because they'll be thinking, that, what does he mean he's got a majority in his own party's organisation? Surely if he's the leader, he can do what he likes. Well, as many parties are, <laughs> and the Labour Party especially, the Labour Party is a coalition of interest groups and different ideological traditions, some of which united behind Keir Starmer, the left of the party, the, some of the Corbynite left, uh, the, the Blairite right of the party, the old union right of the party, all united behind Keir Starmer in 2020. Plus you've got the trade unions who all have seats on the Labour National Executive Committee. Now there are times when they all want to pull together and support the leader of the Labour Party, but a lot of the time they have competing agendas. And this is a period where Keir Starmer has very effectively, or Keir Starmer's aides, we'll draw that theme out as we go on I'm sure, have secured a majority of his supporters on the National Executive Committee, which means they can win contentious battles within the party over things like Jeremy Corbyn and rules yeah. by fiat, essentially. But if he didn't have that majority, then he'd be in a much tricky position. He wouldn't be able to take controversial moves like this. Well, let's just remind ourselves of just how far things have changed under Keir Starmer's leadership. His two clips, back to back, him talking about Jeremy Corbyn after winning the leadership contest and then talking about Jeremy Corbyn just last month. I want to pay tribute to Jeremy Corbyn, who led our party through some really difficult times, who energised our movement, and who's a friend as well as a colleague. Let me be very clear about that. Uh, Jeremy Corbyn will not stand for Labour at the next general election as a Labour Party candidate. Uh, what I said about the party changing, I meant, and we are not going back. I mean, it's, it's pretty stark when you see it, look at it like that, um, isn't it, Patrick? Is it just about the issue of anti-Semitism and Jeremy Corbyn's refusal to acknowledge the scale of it? Or is, it, is this the sort of the tip of the iceberg of a general effort to push the left out? So it's both. The fascinating thing was when Jeremy Corbyn was suspended from his Labour membership in the Labour whip in October 2020, it was because he said in response to the Equality and Human Rights Commission's uh, report into anti-Semitism in Labour that that problem had been uh, dramatically exaggerated mm. by his political opponents. But since then, he has been suspended from the party whip for, for two and a half years. That's a very long time to be suspended. And Keir Starmer has basically added several other reasons to that. He wants an apology for that anti-Semitism statement. 
NATO and Corbyn's stance on uh, Russian aggression mm. or his perceived uh, sympathy for the Kremlin line on NATO uh, has also come into play. And now that motion that's gone to the National Executive Committee today doesn't mention either of those things. It basically just says, we believe that Jeremy Corbyn being associated with the Labour Party is detrimental to our chances of winning an election. Our constitution says, clause one of our constitution says, we exist to win elections and implement democratic socialism. So... You know, prima facie, it's a case... It's basically uh, against... an exercise in stopping Rishi Sunak mentioning Jeremy Corbyn at, at PMQs, yeah, which we talk about all the time. Well, indeed, but weirdly also, you know, in doing so, he increases the salience of Jeremy Corbyn <laughs> yeah. and gives the Tories and journalists trying to work out who Keir Starmer is, what he wants and what's yeah. changed since 2020, cause to compare yeah, yeah, yeah. his dramatically different rhetoric. OK, let's hear now from John Landsman. He's a veteran left-wing campaigner. He helped Jeremy Corbyn get elected as leader, founded the, the group Momentum to support him. So I asked him if blocking Corbyn from standing is the right decision. I don't think it is. I think, uh, you know, the Labour Party has to be a broad church. It always has been a broad church. It's got to appeal to a wide variety of voters. Uh, and, and Jeremy Corbyn is part of that appeal. I mean, he doesn't appeal to everybody, but he appeals to some people. And some people see him as a major, major attraction. I mean, if you look back to the, the what was described as the youth quake in 2017, um, you know, YouGov had uh, people between 18 and 29 voting, you know, almost three to one, 63 percent to 22 percent for uh, Labour. Uh, you know, he has a massive appeal amongst young people, uh, but, but, you know, plenty of others, too. Uh, and the Labour Party has to present a broad church and, a, and, and a, you know, broad offer that, and, and a united party. We need to unite the party, not divide it, which is what, unfortunately, Keir Starmer is doing today. Doesn't a broad church also have to have rules? And Keir Starmer's laid down the rules, he's laid down the conditions, and Jeremy Corbyn's refused to accept them. He's, he's made clear that unless Jeremy Corbyn accepts there was an anti-Semitic problem within the Labour Party when he was leader, he's not allowed to stand. That's, that's fair enough, isn't it? You can, you can be a broad well, church and still have actually, rules. Actually, that is, you know, it's not part of a disciplinary process. Actually, the NEC had a disciplinary process for what Jeremy said after the HRC report. Um, it, it gave him a penalty. It could have included a ban on him standing again. It didn't. You know, that, that disciplinary process is over. And actually, the resolution that um, uh, Keir Starmer is putting today is much broader and more generalised about that. It's actually not a very specific one about I mean, I expected it to be about that. But having now read the motion, uh, it's much, much broader. And you know, to, to, to essentially sack him as an MP because he lost an election, you know, when, you know, in 2017, he got... He also lost uh, an election. Know, actually, a very good, a very good election. And actually, even 2019, you know, was uh, better than, uh, you know, a whole number of elections. John, uh, John, it was, uh, you know, sorry, John, John, in 2015 it, and John in 2010 let's not and try and rewrite history. And so on. Let's not rewrite history. He lost in 2017, and in 2019, it was one of the worst results the Labour Party's had well, in decades. I'm, I'm sorry. In in 2019, even in 2019, and it was a uh, you know in a in a Brexit election, and of course, remember that Keir Starmer was actually the primary architect of our policy on Brexit. It was still a better result in terms of the share of the vote than Miliband in 2015, than Brown in 2010, than Kinnock in 1987, and Foot in 83, the first elections I campaigned in. 
So, you know, I'm sorry, the, 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 the rubber, you know, the, the, even 2019, yes, it was bad in terms of the number of votes we got, but that's because so many of our, of our traditional Labour seats in the north and in the Midlands were, were, were coming out against us because of Brexit, on which Keir Starmer was the architect of our policy. Um, do you? It, it seems to me that the, the Labour leadership now under Keir Starmer is actually more brutal and ruthless than possibly any that you've organised against in the past. Is that your reading of it? Uh, well, I think they are, and I think it's uh, a big mistake for someone who set out to reunite the party and end factionalism. You know, and when, when what he's actually done is is put one faction in charge of the party. That you know, that is not going to unite the party. We will not win unless we are united. We have to present a broad appeal to the public. Is it not the case that Momentum and Jeremy Corbyn tried to put a fa- one faction in charge of the party, and it failed twice at two general elections? Well, I I, I think uh, you know, look, there no undoubtedly there was factionalism under, uh, under under Jeremy Corbyn's leadership. And I supported Keir Starmer's offer when he stood for the leadership of wanting to end factionalism. He hasn't done that. Like, like his, the rest of his Den pledges, he hasn't actually delivered. And you know what he does have to do more than anything else is unite the party and present a broad offer to electorate. It is quite striking when you look back, Keir Starmer describing Jeremy Corbyn as his friend as well as colleague when he first became leader. Now in the position, he's trying to huff him out of the party altogether. Has he been duplicitous, do you think? Well, look, he was very much part of that administration. He shaped its policies. He helped shape its manifesto. You know, to, to now, you know, deny any responsibility for that, you know, is, is not credible and I don't think will be credible uh, for the British public. You know, actually, Keir lags badly be- in his personal ratings, lags badly behind the party. You know, he does need to, to get real about that and recognise that. And what he's doing is not helping. Have you spoken to Jeremy Corbyn? Uh, well, I haven't spoken to him for ages, actually, but, uh, uh, you know, I don't see him very much. Uh, why, you know, how would I, you know, I, I don't know, I haven't. If he if he does stand as an independent, would you go out and campaign for him? No, I certainly wouldn't. I want to see Keir Starmer elected as uh, prime minister of this country. Uh, we need a Labour government. Uh, I don't think he should stand as an independent. I think it would be a big mistake. You know, he is a member of the Labour Party. Keir Starmer isn't proposing to end his membership of the Labour Party. He will have a bigger voice uh, as a uh, as the former leader of the Labour Party and still a Labour Party member than he would have as a backbench MP, and I hope that he does what Tony Benn did. And you know, if he if if Starmer goes ahead with his threat today, then you know I think he would do better uh, to resign, uh, you know, to, or to leave Parliament at the next election, uh, and uh, you know, to 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 use the voice that he will still have. Uh, you know, to, to uh, you know, as a former leader of the Labour Party, uh, to put his case. What should the left do? Other Labour MPs who are on the left, who supported Jeremy Corbyn and still have those views, what should they do in the Commons, in the party? I think we've got to recognise that the radical policies that we had under Jeremy Corbyn are still the policies, you know, were popular in the election 
production. Um, yeah, they didn't, you know, okay, Jeremy Corbyn wasn't as popular, but uh, those policies were, were not the problem. Uh, the party still supports them. Uh, I, I think we should, we should be campaigning still for uh, radical policies. People want to see uh, public services delivered, you know, b by the public sector. Uh, they know that radical solutions are necessary to deal with the terrible state of the economy. Um, and so we have to press for those radical policies. We have to demand, uh, you know, we're a, we're a democratic party. You know, it, this is not an authoritarian party. Keir Starmer, unfortunately, is behaving as if he was some kind of Putin of the Labour Party. That is not the way we do politics. John's Landsman there speaking to me a little earlier on this morning. Well, listening to that was the Labour MP Dame Margaret Hodge, a fierce critic of Jeremy Corbyn during his leadership. Uh, Margaret Hodge, Keir Starmer's behaving like Putin. <laughs> I, when I heard that, I thought um, it, it's half laughable, but actually it's totally inappropriate and ridiculous to compare a dictator fighting a war to someone who has zero tolerance against racism in the form of anti-Semitism in the Labour Party and who is fighting for what is right. If Jeremy Corbyn held his hands up and said, look, I got it wrong, I accept the scale of the anti-Semitism problem under my leadership, could, could, he, could he return? Could he stand as the Labour, Labour MP in, in North Islington? Well, I mean, the problem is such a long time has gone where he's refused to accept the findings of the EHRC report on anti-Semitism in the Labour Party. He's always said it was exaggerated. He's always denied uh, the way it had spread from the fringes to the mainstream. I think it's really hard. I, I have for uh, uh, you know, a number of months thought I can't think of circumstances in which Jeremy Corbyn could be a candidate for Labour in the, in the, uh, next, general, the next general election. I just can't think of circumstances. I don't think he'll ever... I mean, to be honest, Matt, I don't think he'll ever apologise. He's had you know, years to do it and he hasn't got it. What does it say about Keir Starmer? That, uh, Neil Kinnock tolerated Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, John Smith... Tony Blair, Gordon Brown, Ed Miliband. What is it about Keir Starmer that he said, well, enough, you know, we are a broad church, but, but not, not that broad. What, what's happened? Well, let me just say, actually, Neil Kinnock actually expelled a lot of militant supporters at the time uh, in, in a similar way because they, uh, they refused to really work within the Labour Party towards electing a Labour government. So it's not true that uh, these sort of tensions haven't been there before and that they haven't led to uh, uh, people being, being kicked out of the Labour Party or actually in Jeremy's case, he's not been, he's, not been, uh, he's retaining his membership of the Labour Party. He's just thought to be inappropriate to be a candidate for the, uh, for the general election. Uh, it shows, I think, the strength of leadership it shows a total determination to have zero tolerance of anti-Semitism um, in the Labour Party. And um, uh, I think uh, it, 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 it's, uh, it, it's given me added confidence in his ability and capability to lead the country. Uh, and finally then, is this over for the left? The long struggle with the left, like you said, going back to the days of, of Kinnock and so on. Is this, is this the left uh, now out of the Labour Party? Well, I always quarrel with these arguments about left-right. I think what is true is that the obsession with nationalisation rather than looking at um, how services best meet the needs of the citizen, the sort of anti-NATO, anti-West um, uh, 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 perspectives mm. that uh, Corbynism brought, the sort of uh, confrontation 
and, and centralism. Uh, I think this, you know, he was a very it was all part of the centrist state. I think all that is gone. But I don't call that left or right. I think we need a set of very radical proposals, mm. and we're seeing them evolve under Keir Starmer to tackle the issues of today based on the values that brought us all into the Labour Party of things like equality, internationalism, and fairness. Margaret Hodge, always good to speak to you. Thanks so much for joining us this morning. Thanks, Labour Mark. MP, bye. Uh, bye. Uh, good to speak to you uh, here on Times Radio. Patrick McGuire, Red Box editor, is still here. Um, Patrick, that conversation between, well, first John Lansman and then Margaret Hodge, just a reminder of how how divisive this issue is. John Lansman comparing Keir Starmer to Putin. Yes, that was very striking. Although there are some in Keir Starmer's inner circle who would take that as a compliment. <laughs> Not necessarily the direct Putin comparison, but they have been uh, methodically and very autocratically excluding left-wingers, people who have been known to support Jeremy Corbyn before, people on the left of the party, from parliamentary selections. A hundred candidates in the seats Labour wants to win most of the general election have been selected thus far, and only two of them are straightforwardly of the Labour left. Now, nobody in Keir Starmer's inner circle is pretending that isn't deliberate. They merely say... You know, you might say that's a purge. They might say it's, well, they do say it's exercising due diligence. The other striking thing, though, hearing John Lansman say, I absolutely would not go and campaign for an independent Jeremy Corbyn candidacy in Islington North. That was the story uh, I revealed in The Times yesterday. Jeremy Corbyn has now resolved the debate in Jeremy Corbyn's inner circle is over. He will probably, almost certainly stand as a independent candidate in Islington North once he is barred from standing. But the left faces a big choice here. It's a decisive moment. If you're someone like John's, John Lansman or you're John McDonnell or any number of MPs in the Corbynite Socialist Campaign Group in Parliament, if you support a candidate who runs for the Labour Party, uh, sorry, rather runs against the Labour Party, yeah. you are automatically excluded. Which presumably is a calculation of John Lansman. He was very careful to say, while he is behaving like Putin, he supports Keir Starmer becoming Prime Minister because he's a Labour member and he'll be given the boot. If yeah, he's a dastardly dictator, but he's my dastardly, he's my dastardly dictator. dictator. Well, let's take a listen then, because I know, you know, in your, your, your Monday columns of the Times, you've taken an in-depth look of what's going in, on inside the Labour Party. So listen to some of the, the off-the-record thoughts from the Shadow Cabinet that you've been collecting, uh, which we've voiced up. So here's, uh, on the question of uh, what's happening with the left uh, and whether or not they can come back, here's one Shadow Cabinet minister. As long as they have a foothold in the party and the unions, there is a route back. All it will take is a union to swing to the left, and suddenly our control of the party is precarious all over again. And Patrick, this goes back to the point you were making about the unions and the NEC. At the moment, they're all four square behind Keir Starmer. But if suddenly one of them had a more left-wing union leader, wanted to see more of the Corbyn policy agenda, more of Corbyn's uh, acolytes in the, in the shadow cabinet, suddenly he's got a problem. Yeah, two points here. The first is, Keir Starmer has a majority on the Labour National Executive Committee because his aides and allies have very effectively uh, gained the internal democracy of the party and because he has supportive slash quiescent trade unions. Now, the trade unions are about the only place in British political life where the hard left, the organised hard left, uh, you know, proper socialists and communists have a proper foothold. That's partly because the turnout in their internal elections is tiny <laughs> and then they have a foothold in the Labour Party. Now, if any of that changes, you know, say Unison, for instance, a union that's now supportive of Keir Starmer, elects a hard-left leader, that changes the composition of the NEC because they nominate representatives on the NEC. Things change. Angela Rayner, what does she do? What do, what do representatives of the PLP on the 
uh, the Parliamentary Labour Party on the on the NECD very slowly. You know, after a few years of Keir Starmer government, if things change in the country, well, this, yeah, yeah. Well, this is the key point: is that what happens in government? Because if a, if a Keir Starmer government is adopting the, uh, you know, the the line on there being no spending, you know, suddenly you've got unions out on strike demanding pay rises. Let's take a listen. This is another uh, shadow cabinet minister talking about what what could happen, what the left could do, it after an election where jo- where Keir Starmer becomes prime minister. If we only scrape a small majority or end up the biggest party in a hung parliament then all of a sudden these people are relevant again. John McDonnell will be in and out of number 10 like Steve Baker. We'll have to have another general election to get rid of them. Uh, interestingly, Patrick, this morning while we've been on air, another Shadow Cabinet Minister has messaged me saying the leader of their move talking about the left, the leader of their movement has just been deselected and there's been barely a whimper from the Socialist Campaign group of MPs who've clearly decided their safe seats are more important than their principles. If anyone was in any posi- doubt about the weakness of their position or the change that Keir Starmer's delivered in the Labour Party, today should knock those doubts on the head. But that strikes me as a slightly optimistic view. And actually, the the the, the picture of John McDonald going into a Keir Starmer number 10 is the Steve Baker, and, uh, you know, the ERG and the Brexiteers and calling the shots in the Theresa May days. That seems like a really striking comparison to me. It does. And lots of people in the party do fear this. But it's also worth saying that that assumes one crucial thing about the hard left of the Labour Party in Parliament, that they are coherent and can be organised and whipped. No part of the Labour Party is predisposed to schism like the hard left. (laughs) You know, you have 33 MPs in the Socialist Campaign Group at the minute, 33 or so, some of them retiring, a couple of them have been expelled from the party altogether, and the rest of them, that Shadow Cabinet Minister is right to say, have been cowed into submission. Whether they rediscover a bit of spine and organisational capacity after the next election is another question. But, you know, if Labour win a narrow majority, then all of a sudden... John McDonnell is relevant again. You know, it's very striking that the two uh, organisational... Well, John McDonnell, the godfather of the Labour hard left, he's pushing 70. He's not always, uh, you know... He had a heart attack famously, um, which is part of the reason why he never ran for the Labour leadership uh, uh, a second time. Uh, But he's still there. He's still still in situ. And partly because his uh, his friends and allies and supporters think because he's alive to the possibility of exerting influence on a Keir Starmer government from the back benches. Lots of contingencies here, but it could happen. And I suppose the other point is um, that it could even happen before the election if the polls know it. You know, we are still in the situation where, you know, he was 30 points ahead, now it was 25 and now it's 20. If over the coming months, and there's no sign of it yet, to be clear, but if over the coming months maybe some of our focus groups, which show some a bit more warmth towards Rishi Sunak, starts feeding through, if some of the Labour Party's only five points ahead, then, you know, those voices on the Labour backbenches saying, well, actually, maybe you ought to be following a bit more of what we did last time, that those will grow. And look, there are people in the shadow cabinet who believe Keir Starmer isn't, is being insufficiently bold, that people like Rachel Reeves and Pat McFadden, the Shadow Chancellor and Chief Secretary to Treasury, are too prescriptive in the sort of fiscal orthodoxy they apply to spending proposals, uh, that they are too cautious. Um, so, you know, the left themselves may not be capable of winning an argument in the Labour Party anymore. But what MPs yeah. on the right of the Labour Party fear is that they have lots of uh, what you might call, what they would call enablers. They look at Angela Rayner and Andy Burnham, even some people in the shadow cabinet who they see, you know, these are sort of hard-headed, flea-bitten faction fighters who look at sort of people on the soft left of the Labour Party and think you're sentimental and susceptible to left-wing arguments. But it's certainly true that if the polls narrow, people will, there will be a big yeah. current of opinion in the Labour Party that says, look, we're being too cautious. And all of a sudden... 
those voices may not sound quite as discredited, particularly because they're all being very careful and at the moment and oh, pushing yeah, yeah, yeah. and pushing Jeremy Corbyn away, keeping Jeremy Corbyn at arms length. Yeah. They don't want to be tainted by trying that. to separate those to two sort of things, reclaim yeah. the legitimacy of Labour leftism. Yeah. Well, it's all to play for. I suspect this won't be the last time we discuss this. Uh, Patrick McGuire, great to speak to you. Patrick McGuire, Red Box editor. You can get me in your inbox every morning if you are a Times subscriber, and every other Monday is a column in the Times as well. You can also buy my book about Jeremy Corbyn. You can you also like. buy his book about which is called uh, Left Out: The Entire Story of Labour Under Corbyn by right. Patrick McGuire and Gabriel Pogan. Very good. Uh, we also heard from Momentum founder John Lansman and Labour MP Dame Margaret Hodge. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. And we bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from? <laughs>